Hello, I'm Martin. And I'm Angelina. And this is the CX Cast. Hello, today we have a special guest, me and Angelina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We tricked you there. We want to talk about some of the work that Angelina has been doing over the last year on culture and the experience I've had over the last, literally last week on applying some of that research in a live context and seeing how you could run some culture change workshops and use some of the research in practice. So I'm going to start Angelina by kind of going back in time a little bit, because you talked about your research around how to define culture in episode 282. So if anyone wants to listen to that, 282, go back and see where this culture work started from. But give us like a elevator pitch for what that's all about. Yeah, sure. So where we started and what we were describing in episode 282 was how to describe culture. Because culture can seem really vague, really fluffy. Everyone has their own individual experience of culture. In fact, our data shows that. So we needed some concrete ways to talk about culture. And we came up with basically a summary of what academic research was telling us and how practitioners were applying it. So that was shared purpose, behavioral norms, artifacts, rituals, and from there, once we were able to describe culture, there were a million other things, obviously, that we wanted to do and accomplish with the culture research. So we've just been growing it from there. And then the obvious next step, which is where you're kind of publishing now and where you're going, is how do you define the culture? How do you assess the culture? And then how do you change the culture? So talk to me about where the research is going and what you're publishing right now. Yeah, so we tackled assessing culture by, again, looking at academic research, looking at validated existing frameworks, and then throwing them all out. Because <laughs> a lot of these frameworks were developed 20 plus years ago. There are a lot of two by two quadrants to assess your culture. They'll ask you a bunch of questions and then put you in a quadrant, whether you are a um, market focused organization versus an inwardly focused organization, whether you're hierarchical or flat. Right. And that's great if you have a specific place you're trying to go you're trying to get from a to b but cultures today are trying to improve on so many different levels constantly they want to be outward market focused they also want to appreciate their employees and thrive in terms of their internal culture they want to be a very flat organization but they also want to move quickly and have certain expertise that they want at certain layers so we had to get rid of the two by two and we had to measure based on what factors we were finding correlated with culture outcomes like culture of customer obsession, culture of creativity, culture of innovation, all those things that are actually, when you break them down, a lot of different behavioral norms, a lot of different artifacts, rituals, maybe even different shared purposes. So I'm a a big fan of a two by two as an analyst it's it's a go-to model because it's easy but i think i i absolutely agree we've seen this in other areas like our privacy segmentation for instance consumer privacy where the two by two kind of implies that you're one thing or the other and actually people organizations can have multiple characteristics that almost conflict or complement each other is that the kind of thing you were finding where like you can have a culture of creativity and a culture of innovation or at the same time yeah not only that but so here's what we did. I'll tell you how we came up with this model because we didn't want to make it up. We have this future of work survey data that we collect every year globally. I think we're at eight countries now. 
And we have employees at thousands of companies, organizations, could be nonprofits, government, tell us whether or not they believe they have a customer-obsessed culture, an innovative culture, creative culture, whatever. They also tell us things like, I trust my manager. I believe my leaders are living our core values. I feel like I work in a productive environment. And we can actually see the correlations between some of those items in the survey and those outcomes. So we did a cluster analysis and we were able to say, okay, these items correlate with these outcomes. So employees that report trusting their manager are more likely to have these outcomes. If you don't have trust in the manager, now we know that that is something you should work on if you want an outcome. And that's a lot of different items, 16 items that we can look at at different levels. We can look at it within your team We can look at it when you're thinking about the organization as a whole. So it's not a two by two anymore because 16 factors, multiple cultural experiences at different layers in your organization and multiple people experiencing different cultures. And all of that we just called culture energy because we can't measure culture directly, but we can measure that level of propensity to be able to adopt those cultural modes like customer obsession that folks are looking for. You've come up with these kind of four quadrants, haven't you? Is it purposefulness, resilience, that kind of thing? Well, I wouldn't call it four quadrants because then it sounds like... Quadrants, yeah, that's too much two by two. (laughs) Dimensions. But what we did in the cluster analysis was note that some of these items had more of an affinity to each other. So we were able to say, okay, there's four dimensions here that these items are clustering in. What do they have in common? These characteristics of the culture was adaptability, It was purposefulness, it was commitment, and it was motivation. And again, that's not the individual's ability to adapt. That's the culture as a whole's ability to adapt. That's the employees reporting that my culture has a sense of purposefulness. My culture is committed to me, to us. My culture is motivated to change, to take on challenges. I know when we look at the factors that we're talking about, there's a similarity between things like glint surveys and employee pulse surveys. A lot of the same questions, like I trust my manager, I have purpose of work, the same kind of questions come up over and over again. So what, what's the relationship between the work we're doing here in our model and other existing surveys that people might be running in their organizations? Yeah, it's a great question because it can look like a ripoff if you're not explaining how you got there. To create the future of work survey, my team created this survey a few years back and they used academic research, behavioral science to determine what the item should be. And then we use that here to figure out how to model culture. So the overlap is huge because I think Glint and these other sources are doing the same thing. And they're using the same models and same research. Same academic research. I mean, it's really hard to summarize human behavior to understand why certain behaviors lead to certain outcomes. We only know so much about that. So we end up hitting on the same patterns of what we do understand, what we can understand. It's like if you went to a nutritionist and asked, how should I eat healthy? You'll get the same answer from like every nutritionist. Right. And it's the same for a healthy culture. So are you, you're talking about outcomes. These are culture outcomes. Were you able to go as far as saying a culture of, adaptability drives business outcomes in terms of profitability or can you get that far? Yeah, we can. So we found that employees reported they were more likely to be thriving in organizations that were adaptable, purposeful, motivated, committed, even if they were just a few of those things, two or three of those things, or even one of those things, more likely to report they were thriving. 
the companies themselves that they uh, worked at were more likely to be successful. And there was also an ability to change and take on more cultural characteristics, like be more creative, be more innovative. So whenever we're doing our case studies now in culture, we're talking about these culture changes and we're seeing that reflected in what the employees are reporting. Versus when you do a case study, you'd speak to a leader and the leader would tell you, oh yeah, we're so much more creative now. We did this thing, we're working differently. Now we can do a survey with the employees and say, you know what, their behaviors have changed and their perceptions of the culture have changed too. That's interesting. And I like the fact that on some of these surveys, there's like a hundred different things we're asked to assess, whereas you've got, was it 16? Yeah. Which is much more manageable in terms of like, you go after these four things in each of the dimensions and 16 things in total. You can impact those rather than dozens and dozens. Well, and that's what happens in workshops, honestly. I mean, we had some other items that had some weaker correlation to culture outcomes Mm -hmm. and we just cut them out because no one has time to balance changing behavioral norms across 32 different items. What happens in workshops is I share out everything we've learned about your organization. And then immediately you're like, okay, what are the top two or three things so we can just focus? And that's smart because I've been speaking to culture experts for the past couple of years, and they all say, just focus on one thing, focus on one behavior, focus on one change, or you're never going to get the whole organization to change. So then that kind of leads you to like, where is the research going? Because change in culture seems to be the tough nut to crack here. Yeah. So to tackle change in culture, I decided to start with the biggest change in culture that an employee might experience. So mergers and acquisitions. So I just finished a report that'll be live in maybe a few weeks on culture integration. So culture and mergers and acquisitions, when two cultures come together And we found the same pattern in successful mergers or acquisitions. Successful mergers are very rare. Right, yeah. I mean, not so rare are the ones where they're just like, hey, this culture is going to win out. Everyone just assimilate. Um, The rare ones are the, we had both cultures and we brought them together. We rarely see that. But So where you can almost like cherry pick the best of each organization and create something new out of them. That's really hard, but it can happen at the team level where two teams come together and they say, okay, let's do the best of both behaviors, practices, and have a very thoughtful conversation on it. At the company-wide culture level, it's really, really hard to have different rituals come in, different artifacts come in, and it all just kind of meld into one nice cohesive culture. But anyways, here's the pattern that I found whenever there was a culture integration. It started with leadership. Leadership would set new standards for what it meant to be a leader in this culture. Are we going to be heavily communicative and transparent? Are we going to show how we test and learn as we go, even as leaders and be vulnerable? They set that tone and then They define the purpose of the culture. So has that changed? Is it a combination of two organizations? Is it the parent organization is now changing a little bit because they've taken on a more innovative partner and they want to reflect that? And then, of course, leaders need to model the purpose through their behaviors and start to align rituals and artifacts. Rituals are those repetitive things we do very specific way of doing a behavior, repeatable. It could be like agile practices or how we run quarterly town halls or even how we all greet each other in the morning on our shared Teams chat. Whatever it is, 
we start to construct those because those are the one thing that we can, or the two things, artifacts and rituals, those are the things that we can actually play with in our culture to try to change the culture. Whereas behavioral norms, we need to like get that to get caught up by the employees and practiced by the employees. So then after we've aligned rituals and artifacts, then we see more communication of here's a new behavior we need to do, really focus on this one or two things we need to do differently. And then we start to see the change in behavioral norms. And then the cycle repeats itself. Leaders then say, okay, this is how it's changing. Do we need to change how we're acting to reflect where our culture's heading? And the cycle continues. And that's the culture cycle. And what I like about this is you say the word culture and often people think, well, that's incredibly fluffy or difficult to define or like you can't really measure it. But what you're doing is creating very, for me, a very tangible framework where we can deliberately design the culture we want and then create the, I don't want to say processes because that's wrong, but the, the activities, the ways of being and working and the behaviors we adopt that very deliberately push us towards the culture we've designed and we can check whether we're doing it or not. Yeah, and I, I have a report on the Forrester website called Practical Activities for Culture Change. And it is those little activities that you can do, anyone can set up that affect change for the culture. Because the culture change activities are not complicated. They're simple. That's what makes it catch on. Um, but they're very focused, very targeted, very planful. And you have to be very dedicated to it because it takes time. So that's the hard part. Yeah. And one of the things I picked out of the research in particular as well was this, there's a kind of concept of the things you don't do or the things that you allow to happen are an equal part of your culture. So if you, if you allow poor behavior and don't stop it, or if you allow rudeness or whatever, then that's saying the tone and the context, well, that's okay. That's where the barrier is. That's where the line is. Therefore we'll walk up to the line and maybe cross it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, it's a shadows as well as the positive. Yeah. And in um, customer obsessed cultures, it's a lot of we don't use customer insights regularly in all of our strategy. We don't think about the customer when we're doing XYZ. We don't move quickly. We need to get from there to moving quickly to being insights driven. All of those things that need to be added to what we're already doing in our day to day and how we think about the work that we get done every day. So you've got this model, we've got a survey that we can take, we can field it in organizations, we can do all the big stuff, but we can also make it quite easy and quick and tangible. So I used this model this literally this week in a two-stage process with one of our sales teams in Forrester. So we engaged with the leaders and then we engaged with the wider team. And I found it a very, I guess, practical way of talking about culture. Because like, let's face it, when I start a workshop and say, I'm going to talk to you guys about culture today, you can see people's eyes just go like, oh my God. He's <laughs> either going to make a sing a song or draw <laughs> things on a whiteboard, or it's just going to be some internal survey. But it, I found it a very quick, there was a surprise in this as well, which we can talk about, but I found it a very easy way of taking, taking your model of behaviors, rituals, and artifacts, and then literally running an exercise of, what do we do that we like and we want to keep? So what do we continue? What do we need to stop because it's negative? And what do we need to start because we're not doing it? So we got essentially a kind of nine box grid of stop, start, carry on across those three categories. And it was, the, the team found it very tangible, which I, I found really healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's also easy to participate, right? Like everyone is experiencing the same culture. So everyone has input to give on this. Versus when you're doing something like an ideation session and it's like, come up with new ideas. It's like, 
uh, I'm not in the mood today to think up something. I'm all out. Yep. But I can think about how there could be something just a little bit different in the way we behave that would make a world of difference to me. And I can say it out loud and see if anyone else agrees. The categories were very helpful. So rituals, rituals is one thing. Again, it's a word that some people go like, ooh, rituals, that sounds a bit mysterious. But once you explain, no, it's literally about things you do. We started uncovering things like one of the sales leaders over the summer just took random people in the office out for ice cream. Nice. Because he just wanted to make connections. And then we said, well, that's a ritual. We could adopt that. What can we do in the winter? Maybe we could go for coffee or maybe we could, you know, there's, there's other things we can do. So we started finding like dozens of little things around the office that people were doing. Either we thought we better stop that or actually they're really positive things for role model because they, they create those kind of connections that we're looking for. Did anyone get stuck anywhere in describing the culture? Um, yes or no. The, the kind of nine box exercise flowed really well. We actually got stuck before that because your, your first pillar is a shared purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And you'd think a sales team would have a really obvious shared purpose, which is sell more stuff. Yeah. But they literally stop dead at that. So I put up shared purposes, kind of X percent growth over X number of years, and everybody stopped. Yes, but that's very salesy. And what that doesn't allow us to do is grow beyond the sales team and engage the wider ecosystem in that because it's all about literally a revenue number. And how much do our like our editing team or our website production team, they're not really connected into that, but they are part of the office, part of the culture, part of the overall ecosystem of making things work. So actually out of the entire session, we spent about three hours doing this and we spent about half of the time talking around what the purpose of the organization was. And what was interesting for me is it's not, we weren't talking about Forrester's purpose because Forrester's declared its purpose and we're kind of, you know, if you're working here, you bought into that clearly. But this is more about like, what is the purpose in this of the UK team? What are we trying to achieve? Right. And it's, it sits within that overall macro kind of Forrester world. But we're trying to work with our local clients, the local audience here within the local context to grow business and thrive. And grow was the word that we kept coming back to because growth seems to encapsulate financial results. It encapsulated personal growth, development, like being able to hire more people, having more influence in the world. So that we didn't actually manage to create the final definition, but the word became the kind of touchstone as we went into the second exercise to go, okay, if we want this, if we want influence, if we want personal growth, financial growth, what is the culture that we need to start creating? I love that. And I love that growth had to be defined for Forrester, not just throw out the word growth and assume that it's going to make sense as a attribute to the culture because Growth means so many different things yeah. in different cultures, and it means different things in different cultures at different times. I was speaking with a client where they were really a culture about delighting the customer. That was their thing. They love to delight the customer. Then they're hitting this recession type market dynamic where the customer just wants to feel secure. They want to feel like they have someone they can rely on. So what does delight look like? And we talked about like, what? How can you be delighted by just feeling secure? I'm delightfully warm and secure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were I just moved that. into a big cold house. I'd be delighted to be warm right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you have to talk it out. It's just words. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, and the words. I think this is why I like the word growth because it. We found a word that resonated with everybody in the room, and everybody could take their own meaning from it. Rather than having having a business purpose of like double our revenue, like yeah, that's all, that's all very laudable and whatever. We might want that, but 
we all decided that didn't really excite anybody. You know, I'm, I'm not going to think, hey, we got to the end of two years, we double the revenue. But I've grown as an individual. I've grown in my purpose within the organization or my influence within the world. The important thing I got was if you're doing this exercise, that shared purpose has to be meaningful to everybody who's involved. And it has to kind of spark something in them that they want rather than just, oh, well, I'll comply with it. Martin, would you say you're starting a culture change of talking about culture? <laughs> I th- in a way, yes, because it's, because it's, you said planful and like purposeful earlier on. You've given us a framework that we can look at ourselves and, and actually say, what is our culture? Why is it like that? What do we want it to be? And how do we make it the way we want it to be? So that's quite different from just kind of, it is what it is and some stuff's good and some stuff's bad. It's, it's given us a language to analyze what we do and opt to make a change. Yeah, and our, our customer success team started a culture champions, a culture council. And I was talking to them this week. I mean, in the past nine months, they've done so many different things. They've become very resilient and they're also spreading more information across the organization about how they help with things like sales, how they help make connections across research. And they really do rely on being able to talk about culture in a constructive way so that they can figure out what they're going to do next as a culture council. So it's all just helpful to speak more clearly, effectively. That's how we get things done. And it should be no different with culture than anything else. I'd agree. So we talked about defining culture, changing culture, measuring culture, applying this in a kind of practical way. Hopefully this has been interesting and insightful. If you want to learn more about Angelina's original research, which sparked all of this, episode 282, we encourage you to go back and listen to that. All that remains to say is thank you, Angelina. Thank you. And anyone who's had a big culture change effort wants to tell me about it, you can find me on LinkedIn and message me. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forrester.com or message us on Twitter at cx underscore cast. As always, you can find us at www.thecxcast.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights.